Okay, so Jane? I'm here. All right. Okay. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Today we've got Dara Lind and Jane Coaston here. Uh, we want to talk about the continued sort of crisis with the family separations at the southern border. Uh, we're recording a little later than usual on a, on a Tuesday uh, because of a conference call that Health and Human Services held and then Donald Trump himself spoke and, and addressed this issue around midday today. In two very different tones. Surprisingly, the uh, press call with Health and Human Services did not sound much like President Trump's own remarks. Yes. Uh, so anyway, TLDR. We're not going to do a white paper this Tuesday because we want to get get to the meat of this topic, get the show sort of where it is. Um, so, Jerry, you, you alluded to this, but there's like a striking contrast between these sort of bureaucratic legalisms that most administration officials are using to discuss this situation and the rhetoric that the president himself is using. Right. I mean, I think that the administration is dealing with a few competing imperatives. Like taking Donald Trump himself out of the picture, if you are a Trump administration official attempting to defend to the public what looks like not only a policy that is unpopular among a majority of the public, but a policy that all the people who don't like it are extremely mad about, up to and including the White House press corps, you're trying to deal with, one, the fact that you instituted this policy in part as an attempt to deter illegal activity. The, you know, Jeff Sessions said initially in May when he announced the zero tolerance prosecution policy that the aim was to deter people from crossing illegally. They've left kind of vague whether that means they're supposed to cross at ports of entry or whether they're just supposed to like not come to the U.S. But, you know, that is a message that theoretically it's important to send. At the same time, there are legal reasons why they can't actually say deterrence, especially like Actual Homeland Security officials can't say deterrence because there are court orders in effect that say you can't detain one asylum seeker to send a message to other people. So they're trying to, like, walk a line between those two things. And they're also trying to make what is pretty clearly a policy that was decided on the prosecution side, but that the implications of what does that mean for where kids are going to be housed? How are we going to make sure that parents stay in touch with kids? Is it important for parents to you know, not be deported without their children? All of these things do not appear to have been super thought through. So the administration is trying really hard to make it seem like this is a process that works or at least is being made to work. And so they're using this very sober technocratic language, which is uh, not what Donald Trump is saying. No. And it's interesting because this very much is a strategy that was born within the Stephen Miller wing of the White House, though he, the Stephen Miller wing appears to be a wing of one, because you've already seen Kellyanne Conway and numerous other White House officials saying, no, everyone hates this policy and Trump trying to blame it on Democrats. And it's interesting because the communication strategy around this particular issue has been poor, 
it's been very, very poor. There have been a lot of conservatives who have talked about this, how this, you know, Ross Duthat brought up on Twitter yesterday, you know, you can't say we're being forced into this if you didn't make any effort to sell the public and Congress on the alternative system before you chose this one. Like the fact that the Trump White House did at no point didn't need normal salesmanship and that a, a lot of this is coming because Senator Jeff Merkley attempted to go visit these kids and was turned back. And then it just started turning into a bit of a palava in the media. And it's interesting to me that you have, you know, DHS's Kristen Nielsen saying this isn't a policy. And then on, in May 10th, she was saying, no, this is a policy. And no one can decide on what's a policy, what's not a policy. What does policy mean? Is there a law? There's no law. And There's also the, a fun legalistic reason for this, by the way, which also has to do with their fear that they're going to get successfully sued over this policy and the judge is going to force them to stop it. It's, it's a lot easier to sue something, somebody over a policy than it is to sue them over a consequence. Yes, which is why perhaps the people who said it wasn't the policy should maybe go back to that. And but no, they haven't. They've got yeah. they've they've decided yep. it's a policy again. And it, it's just interesting because it seems to have been, you know, I wrote today about and I think Jamal Bowie and a bunch of other really smart writers have written about how Stephen Miller's entire point, as he told McKay Coppins for The Atlantic, is basically to trigger the libs. And he did it, you know, he was kind of the instrumental force between the travel ban and behind a lot of kind of the Bannon-esque immigration efforts by this White House. But the problem is that triggering the libs, it just unites the left and divides the right, which is why you've got Ted Cruz trying to come up with legislation because, you know, Ted Cruz is in a border state. He understands where his bread is buttered, so to speak. And so, yeah, yeah, the libs are effectively triggered. And now they're real, real mad and organized and donating money and finding attorneys and getting all the stuff. And meanwhile, the White House has three separate excuses for what's going on here. It's like, you know, the most confusing musical in the world. But so wait, so so Derek, can I yeah. try yeah, to yeah. achieve enlightenment on like the, the Kirsten Nielsen decoder ring? Yes. yes. So when she says there is no policy of separating children yes. from their parents, what she means is that it has always been the case that if you are facing criminal charges in the United States, a consequence of being arrested is that you will be separated from your children. And yeah, the, I mean, at least at, at least for the time it takes to book you. Right. right. But I mean, they, this is a thing, right? Yeah. I mean, right. right. And, that, and that the policy here is that they are prosecuting people who arrive irregularly for illegal entry. Right. And, okay. that, and that it just happens to be that as a downstream consequence – they are yes. separated from their children. That's, that's, yeah. that's the meaning of this? Yes. I mean, I think that it's kind of easy to understate the agency that the administration has here because the fact of the matter is that they're still not prosecuting everyone. Uh, they still appear to be prosecuting a minority of people who get caught between ports of entry, in fact. And while we don't have stats on how many parents versus non-parents are being prosecuted, other administration officials have said, you know, proactively that it is – something of a point of pride for them that they do not, quote unquote, exempt categories of people from enforcement sure. of the laws. But yes, that's what what Nielsen means. She means that there was no policy directive from her, from Attorney General Sessions saying, you're going to separate families now. The directive was mass prosecution. The problem with that, not just from a like, this is not the common sense meaning of this word standpoint, but from a, we know a lot about how the Trump administration works. And every indication that we have is that this was considered for months 
because it was known that this was going to be the way that families could get separated. Right. Like, it's not just a consequence they were aware of. It's the way they were planning to get around this extra legal protection for children that they consider a loophole, which had required them to release families detained together after a certain amount of time. Right. So and then the other thing is that, like, in Nielsen's presentation of this, she can sometimes sound like they're simply trying to channel people toward the legal points yeah. of entry, which could be a policy. It right? could be a policy. But, I, right. but then, like you but can then imagine a not... world where they're like staffing up all of the Office of Field Operations people. Yeah. But, it, but that's not actually what they are doing, right? They are both attempting to deny people hearings at the legal points of entry and prosecuting them for arriving between the points of entry because in some – I mean, again, Nielsen said that this is not intended to deter asylum seekers. Right. But everyone else, including your HHS call, yeah. described it as a deterrence. Right, right. So the relationship between those points I just want to spell out a little more, right? Like the question of what are you deterring people from is, OK, if you're just deterring them from entering illegally, then you're essentially – that's that's the same thing as you're encouraging them to go through the right way. Uh, but this is like the, if I was trying saying, to bring some vegetables up from Mexico, right? right? There's like a right way to do that and a wrong way. Right. And you'll be punished for doing it the wrong way. But if you but go the right way, there's like a USDA inspection process and you might have to wait in line and it's annoying. But they are, they are trying to let right. you through. Right. So the administration is saying that they – the capacity at ports of entry to process people presenting themselves for asylum is like full up. And so they're telling people who are waiting in line to officially cross into the U.S. that they do not have room for them. In some places, they're like being given numbers and an actual, you know, timetable for like when to come back. In some places, it's just like, no, you know, there's there's not a lot of communication about, oh, it's not that we're denying you the opportunity to present yourself for asylum. We're just full up today. There have also been cases of you know, border agents reportedly going right up to the, like, official line where Mexico turns into the U.S. and doing a, like, none shall pass thing so that you don't set foot on U.S. soil, which would give you a legal right to claim asylum or, like, to seek asylum. But the what's interesting here about the deterrence angle is the administration, when asked why it isn't putting more resources at ports of entry, which is what you think would be the logical solution to that, is saying, well, we've done this before when there's been a temporary surge of people at ports of entry, and this is just going to be like that. Like, we think that this is also going to be temporary, which raises the question, why do they think it's going to be temporary, right? If they have this zero tolerance policy in place, and it's designed supposedly to funnel people towards ports of entry, why do they think the number of people at ports of entry is going to go down? So it's really not clear whether they're trying to deter people from coming to the U.S. period, which is kind of not legal under international law. Like the U.S. and the U.N. don't exactly agree on how to interpret the, the Refugee Convention, but there's not a whole lot of gray area that you don't get to just say we don't take re we don't take asylum seekers anymore. Right. Yeah. But I, I think a critical element of this is that Trump does not believe that these are legitimate asylum right. claims, right? Yes. So like one of the things he said today in his sort of discursive press conference was that he wants to get authority to cut off foreign aid to countries that are sending us these people. And that's a very I, – I mean I, I think to, to, to frame it that way, right, like it reveals a lot about his – 
conception of what's happening here. That I mean, I, I know, Derry, like you've drawn a, a lot of attention to this like rhetoric of, of sending people. Yeah. But this is like the most literal instantiation. Oh, it totally of this, is. Right. That like his presumption is that the Northern Triangle governments in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala have perfect control over this northward bound flow of people. And that if you punish the governments for sending people, that they will stop the sending of people. Were it to be the case that that's what's happening, like, that's just a v- totally different international relations, legal situation than an asylum Right. It's actually really instructive to compare this with how Obama dealt with the actual increase in the number of unaccompanied minors coming to the U.S. in 2014. Obama at that point, the Obama administration leaned really hard on the idea that these were not people who were seeking humanitarian protection, that they were mostly seeking economic opportunity and trying to reunite with their families. And a large part of that was like appearing with the leaders of Northern Triangle governments and being like, yes, we understand that these places need more economic development so that people don't want to leave. But it's not true that these are, you know, terrible, unsafe places that people need to flee for humanitarian reasons. So it was very much buddy-buddy for the purpose of delegitimizing the asylum claim. Trump's idea of delegitimizing an asylum claim is to piss off the Northern Triangle governments, which is ironic because it underlines the idea that these are super unsafe places that you know, you shouldn't have to send people back to, but also absolutely gets in the, in the State Department's way. Uh, congratulations to Mike Pompeo, who I think is dealing with this for the first time. But like the last time Trump proposed this in February, there was a lot of trouble with, you know, El Salvador and Honduras. Mexico has gotten extremely chippy with the Trump administration over its attempts to be high handed about things like Donald Trump's idea of we're going to take we're going to conflate people with their governments and take it out on, you know, governments for people and vice versa actually does have consequences for the real world. It's well, not it clear is, that Donald Trump's aware specific of consequences that. for this situation, right? I mean, I I wouldn't say that Obama's effort to address this in a collaborative regional way um, was a smashing success, but there was a a theory of the case. Yes. Whereas, you know, so like if you could promote economic development and security in the Northern Triangle, that I think really would reduce the outward flow of people. So, you know, like good ideas on on how to do that are very welcome in my inbox and elsewhere. Whereas what Trump is doing is not – it's like not possibly going to work, right? Which I I do think is like a big – Part of this, right? When Trump first took office, there was a decrease in people showing up at the border, perhaps by coincidence, perhaps because people were afraid of of the great devil Donald Trump, who'd recently been elected. I will throw down that I think it's the latter for the record. If right. But, but either way, the Trump administration was they, – they were really uh, happy about this. Like they felt that they had accomplished something significant and had sort of – in the very Trumpy way, right? That they had like proven the haters wrong. That like by saying a lot of crazy stuff, Trump had caused people to stop arriving. Therefore, eliminating the need to actually do anything different. The problem had just gone away. Trump had fixed it by getting tough in a sort of non-specific way. Then, when the flow started up again, like this is a big sort of problem, and you know, it falls into the category of like. Shit happens. Presidents need to deal with difficult 
circumstances all the time. They often this, wrestle this with even these be things. This would a difficult circumstance if the administration hadn't decided to frame it as a big increase over last year instead of return to normalcy. Sure, but I mean, I just to say that, yeah, like, yeah. that the Obama administration, you know, they they like they didn't want to welcome everybody. They didn't have a great way to stop people from coming. It was hard, right? Like yes. they were struggling with how they wanted to deal with this, but. They also had a presidency that was like accustomed to grappling with issues and trying to work them through. And Trump doesn't have that. Not that much has happened in Trump's presidency other than Trump doing stuff to destabilize the situation. Right. And this is like a normal presidenting, right? Like events in the external world are putting pressure on Donald Trump to make decisions. And he's uh, flailing. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how that flailing is being perceived. I mean, it's, you know, in the somewhat press conference or uh, event he had today, he was supposed to be speaking to like, small business owners. National Federation of Independent Businesses. Yes, and he went on a 27-minute rant about immigration before saying, and now we'll talk about small businesses. And then you know, that it also involved talking about crooked Hillary and the election and the IG report. And it's just – it's interesting how – for someone who during the RNC in 2016 was saying, I alone can fix, now it's one, Congress alone can fix, which isn't true. But also this idea that these events are just taking uh, – occurring to him. He is just a like peaceful observer of this administration. That is his administration. And it's very funny. I've, I, I've always joked that sometimes Trump's Twitter reads as if he is not in fact president but is just sort of observing the presidency from afar. Like, ah, oh, it seems like they're having a tough time down there over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Really need to get some strong leadership in there. I'm like, no, no, that's you. That's you. You're the president now. You have to do this. And so it's interesting because it seems as if you know, he would totally believe that these governments are conspiring to both be destabilized enough to cause people to want to leave to seek stability and a better life and to seek asylum to get away from terrible situations because I think that he does believe that the events of the world largely are taking place either to help him or to spite him in some way. Right. I mean, there's, I think, also kind of a – Donald Trump pretty clearly does not believe that the U.S. has obligations to other people or countries. Um, that's, you know, been a core part of America first from the beginning. Generally, people who espouse that ideology in politics temper it to different regards with the fact that there is some obligation under, you know, the existing international order to cooperate with other countries or to take in other people regardless. Donald Trump does not appear to believe that, you know, there are obligations that he personally hasn't signed on to. But it also kind of speaks to, I think, a much deeper idea that he has that not only does the government, does America not have an obligation to anyone, but that People who are coming here aren't coming here to become, you know, aren't coming here to seek America. They're coming here to bring their home countries to America, which is a, a, a besieged element of this mindset that I think goes a lot deeper than like Trump's personal view of his presidency and to Trump's view of the world. OK, let's take a break. And then, then I want to talk about that. Everyone has mundane tasks that they could use help completing. And, and usually these kind of tasks, they, they take time away from the more important things that you need to do in life. Uh, so Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant 
that handles the administrative aspects of life so you can focus on what matters most. Thousands of busy professionals already rely on Finn to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or even more complex jobs like creating a website, planning an event, or, or performing market research so you can make better use of your time and be more productive. Uh, so something I, I done with, with Finn that's just really cool is I, I've got Finn to set me up to get a haircut booked for me on a regular schedule. It looks at my calendar so that it knows like when I'm going to be free on about the right time, get in touch with the barbershop, make sure that there's an appointment that's available roughly within the right time frame, schedule it up, alert me to when exactly I'm supposed to show up. I don't have to waste time or more likely just wind up forgetting about it. You get it done and it, it's reasonable, it's affordable. You don't have to be like a billionaire who has an actual full-time personal assistant. Like the best assistants, Finn knows your preferences, remembers the people you interact with, and integrates with your email and calendar. Finn can make calls, send emails on your behalf, pay bills, remember important dates, and automatically get things done for you. It'll help save you a ton of time, which is really good. The best part is Finn's always available on demand, but you only pay for what you use. So once you try Finn, they think you're really going to love it. So we've got a chance for you to try Finn for free. Just use our link, finn.com slash weeds. That's finn, F-I-N dot com slash weeds to try Finn for free. Finn.com slash weeds. So I, I think there were two sort of like really telling pieces of rhetoric from Donald Trump over the past 24 hours. One is a tweet where he says, uh, Democrats are the problem. They don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they may be, to pour into and infest our country like MS-13. Um, so, you know, infest, right? And this follows upon the controversy that we had uh, a couple weeks ago about animals, And then we had also a couple of different tweets that Trump made in which he referenced uh, an increase in crime in Germany after uh, they allowed more more refugees in. Um, Factually, Trump is – I think largely mistaken about this. Uh, what seems to have happened in Germany is that there was an uptick in crime in the sort of first two years that uh, refugees were coming in and then it has now fallen since then to lower in most measures than the sort of pre-baseline level. Uh, but Trump also said that they're coming in and they're, they're changing the culture of Germany, right? And I think there's something very, very German about that. Uh, Trump is right that this is a big, very contentious political issue in Germany that has been a lot of trouble for Angela Merkel. And when I was in Germany last fall and I I talked to some – far-right voters and people who were sticking with the the Bavarian conservatives, Uh, something all of them said to me, everybody brought up the crime issue, but also people said Germany is not an immigration country, uh, which I I don't speak German, but you you could tell they were saying the phrase immigration country like it's one of those German compound (laughs) words, right? By which they meant like in contrast to the United States, Right. right. They were saying that like I, the American journalist, needed to understand that like Germany is for Germans and that if all these Syrians came into Germany, like that was not going to work because Germany was not an immigration country. And Trump clearly does not see – I don't want to say that Trump doesn't see America as an immigration country, but he sees it as an immigration country for white people. Yeah. I think. Right. right? Yes. And that – I mean, it's interesting because, A, I mean, the United States is not Germany in its history. And also, B, like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but, like, Latin American is not Syria. You know, like, this is a, um, 
there's a large Latino population in the United States. My great-grandparents moved here from Cuba like a billion years ago. Um, we've had uh, Hispanic senators for centuries uh, in, in the United States. They're Catholics, you know, like same religion as as most Americans. And it's it's a very striking sense from Trump that there is something profoundly and completely alien about the presence of Central American people in the United States, that it is like a contamination, an infestation, right? And it's not that this has like no antecedents in American history, but it is very outside the mainstream of American political rhetoric. Right. And the polling shows that most Americans still in 2018, the year of our Lord, still support legal pathways for citizenship for immigrants. And it's interesting you brought up the Germany example. Um, in Germany, after World War II, they brought in guest worker, uh, guest, Gustarbeiten, and they were from Turkey. And there was this whole thing like, okay, you can come and work, but you can't become citizens and neither can your kids become citizens because Germany had a conceptualization of its own nationhood that was law of the blood, that basically Germans are Germans and you can't really become a German and you can't stop being a German, as opposed to somewhere like France, which basically just kept wandering around North Africa and deciding that, ah, this is also France now. And so it's interesting that those are such two different ideas of who gets to become a member of a country. And the German one is never what the United States has been about. Now, granted, it's it's been interesting to have people, say, you know, who, you know, when they're talking about this family separation policy, they're talking about our policies on the southern border who apparently have just forgotten about everything that happened before, like, 2015 or something like that. And, you know, I'm not talking just about what, ha you know, 2014, the issues of um, undocumented minors coming across the border, but I'm going back to say President Eisenhower's quote-unquote Operation Wetback that actually involved the forced deportation of U.S. citizens just because they looked Mexican, including people, you know, getting their heads shaved by government officials so that they'd be able to tell who got kicked out and who didn't. Wait, really? Yeah, really. Although at the same time, a lot of those were kind of, like, there was simultaneously people being walked to the Mexico border and told to turn around and come back so that they could enter illegally for the purpose of business. Like, I think the legacy of Operation Wetback is a little more complicated than the narratives would have you believe. But it was not good. <laughs> it was not our tip top time. But I do think that it, it's interesting how the kind of Trumpian logic and the very Millerite logic about immigration that not only these policies and this kind of Germanic concept of immigration, something that is widely accepted by Americans, but also a winning issue in midterm elections and in future elections, which Stephen Miller has repeatedly says he convinced of that, you know, this is something that, you know, if we start a conversation about the border that will win 90 percent of the time. And that's something that Bannon thought, too. Now, granted, Stephen Bannon's the same person who thought it'd be a great idea to go insult the University of Alabama in Alabama. So, you know, results may vary. But I think that it's it's interesting to see what people's actual views on immigration how those differ from what the White House's views of what Americans think is. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting way to think about it because I think that Stephen Miller is in, has been thinking about this as we can control whether the border is seen as a security issue or not. Like, it is absolutely true that the fundamental genius of Donald Trump's career is that he was willing to make immigration is going to be a 
physical danger to you and your family into a central part of his campaign flank. You know, that's that's how he talks about it. And often, you know, the kind of liberal pushback to that, calling it racist, calling it dehumanizing, was regarded as apologizing for criminals, even up to the point of the animals controversy, where the question was, OK, was he talking about MS-13, who it's implicitly OK to call animals, or was he not really talking about MS-13? The problem with that is that it only stretches so far, right? The attempts that the administration has made to say, well, the real problem is that, you know, illegal immigrants are separating families when they kill people. Like, those have fallen flat. There isn't a lot of purchase for them. And it it does appear that, you know, while there's some support for the administration, like, engaging in zero-tolerance prosecution, there's not a whole lot of, well, this is necessary to keep America safe going on. And once that connection breaks, all you have are the people the critics were saying this is dehumanizing rhetoric, which like all of a sudden when you're talking about families being split from each other and like children being sent into these shelters that look like tent cities with the implication that they're there for much longer than they actually are in many cases, it all of a sudden starts to look like, oh, maybe there actually is something like deeply screwed up and racist going on here. Right. And it's interesting because you've seen, you know, I, I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's a conservative writer and he was he was saying, and he said this online as well, that, you know, if the administration wanted to push back on that point and just stay on the, like, this is about a security issue, then you wouldn't have Fox News trying to argue that, no, 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 these children are basically being kept in the equivalent of summer camps. And like, I've been to a fair number of summer camps and very few involved cages, just to be clear. And you, you wouldn't see, you know, Jeff Sessions leaning into the weird Nazi metaphor, which Laura Ingram like walked him up to. And then Jeff was like, well, the Nazis were trying to keep the Jews in. And I'm like, oh, dear, this is very bad. And it, it's interesting because I think that there is an element like what, as Dara said, like that once that connection has been broken, once the White House saying that, you know, well, they're murdering people, which is a permanent disconnection. And and, I love uh, that your White House voice and my White House voice are the same. This is now basically, like canon. Yeah, I, I just like imagining that Muppets are doing this because it makes it all much better for me. But you know, once that connection is breaking, you're starting to get, and you know, that kind of goes back to this communications issue that we're seeing. It's like the White House is trying to circle back on its defense of this particular policy, and because the security issue apparently is out the window, they've just started going with anything else they can think of. Can we I, talk about the Nazi compar- comparison, though? Like, not not necessarily in the, like, specific, like, Jeff Sessions yeah. is, in fact, wrong about the development of dealing with the Jewish question in Nazi right. Germany. But, like, like, the conclusion this whole thing leads me to is, is it maybe not wrong to t- to draw parallels between the rhetoric that the that the administration is using and the rhetoric that was used to dehumanize Jews and other undesirables in Nazi Germany like i have been saying i have been strongly resistant to, to any policy comparison and i remain resistant to any policy comparison because there's a really important difference between how you treat people who are coming in and how you treat people who are living here but i don't know what to do about the rhetoric at this point i mean the rhetoric is uh close i think and, you know, on policy terms, I think the strongest comparison is not about what's happening at the border, but at gestures toward deporting people over like really old beefs. Yeah. And this notion that's been floated, but I think not fully implemented, of like trying to go back through everybody's fingerprint records, right? This is a stuff they haven't really done full forcedly the way they are at the border. But there's there's clearly some 
sentiment inside the administration that they should try to come up with a way of kicking out people who are here legally. And and the uh, revocation of temporary protected status was like one step in that direction, right? That, you know, there's always been a sort of a line, I still frequently hear it in my angry emails that like, no, 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 we're talking about illegal immigration right. in all caps letters. Um, one thing we've seen like with the TPS revocations is that there's there are more gray areas to this question of legality than, you know, one might naively think that you can conjure up right. 20,000 illegal immigrants by revoking legal permission for people to be here when you know perfectly well that they have roots in the community and aren't going to just vanish, yes. right? So there, there are these gestures at like purging people who are already resident in the United States. It hasn't like fully been done, but, you know, it it could happen, right? And it and it seems like part of the the logic of, you know, infestation and animals and and uh, all the rest of that, right? Is that, you know, we're not just talking about sort of what's happening at the exterior boundary. And in fact, the like for all the talk about MS-13, right, the policy shift in ICE enforcement guidelines has been to back away from we're only going after the most dangerous criminals to a more we're going after whoever we sort of happen to see. And it follows from the worldview. You know what I mean? That yeah, like yeah. that this is not just like narrowly a question about the processing of asylum claims, although the logistics and technicalities of that are involved, but that like there is a real sense that just as letting a million Syrians settle in Germany changes the meaning of what Germany is, that having all these people from shithole countries in right. the United States changes America and changes it for the worse. And I think it, it's interesting because a lot of this rhetoric, you know, you've seen story after story of people from, you know, smallish towns across the South or the West where they're very supportive of Trump's policies with regard to immigration until ICE shows up in their town. And they're like, no, 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 no. We didn't mean our immigrants because our immigrants are fine. Sure. It's Maria's that, nice. It was yeah, the bad it's, one. Yeah, it's that old, like, I didn't think the Panther would eat my face off, says person who voted for the Panther eating people's face off party. But I, I will say that, you know, I wrote... You know, I've written a fair amount on Nazi Germany. I wrote my honors thesis on the Battle of Stalingrad. This is something I think about a lot. And I think that my objection to this is because when you bring up those types of allegories, one, like there's other ways we can refer to this and we can refer to American policy. You know, we've interned people before. We've mass deported people before. We've done this before within people who are listening to this podcast lifetimes. But also I think that it obfuscates the issue to start talking about something, you know, when people are putting pictures of Auschwitz and saying they separated mothers and children here too. And I'm like, that's, you know, can we stay focused on the mothers and children who are being separated in this particular situation? Because their stories are important too. And, you know, their stories are here and now and real. But it's also interesting how this rhetoric about, you know, Tucker Carlson, who makes $5 million a year and would be probably the best example of a kulak I can think of when he's the one who's talking about how, you know, oh, this is all because the liberals and the media hate families. And this is all about, you know, the destruction of the American family or something. This, this language about how the 
infestation of the other is a danger to this nuclear family, which I, you know, I, it doesn't take a lot of introspection to recognize that when they say nuclear family, they're talking about white families. And they're talking about this idea that, you know, there's a reason why the specific stories that are brought up when people talk about the, the so-called horrors of illegal immigration are terrible things happening to young white women. And I think that it's it's worth noting that this rhetoric doesn't need to be based you know, on the rhetoric of the Third Reich to be terrible and racist and awful. Okay, let's take a break because I, I want to talk more about Tucker. If you ever shower or brush your teeth or try to make your hair look presentable, I've got great news for you. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. And if you don't ever shower or brush your teeth, frankly, you've, you've got bigger problems in life. Uh, so, so Dollar Shave Club, they've got everything you need to get ready in the bathroom. Uh, you know, not just shaving, which is great for me because I have a beard. Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club, they deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a, a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. Uh, I'm a really big fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. Uh, it's just like, it smells really good. They don't have it in stores. Uh, it's just like amazing stuff. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. You will feel the difference and shipping is included with your membership. So here's a great way to try it, like a whole bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, that's their amazing butt wipes, their world famous shave butter, and their best razor, the six blade executives. You keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month, add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. I thought Monday night's Tucker Carlson show, it painted a picture of how this situation that appears to me to be a political loser for Trump could turn into a winner. That he had what I thought was a more uh, uh, disciplined and, and workable message, which was that he said, you look at what's going on here and it's very telling about how our ruling class thinks. They care so much more about these foreign children than they do about our children here at home. Right, like that's that's what he said. And if you if you read um, Justin Guest's book about uh, white working class voters in Ohio, or uh, Arlie Hochschild's book about white working class voters in Louisiana, this is a a concern that comes through very clearly in the ethnography is not a specific concern about the immigrants, but a concern that other people care too much about the immigrants and that in America it used to be or it should be that white working class people in small towns are like the primary subject of personal concern, but that it has become a country in which, you know, whether we're talking about representation at the Oscars or the treatment of detained immigrant children, that like everyone is worried about other people's problems, right? And that is a way that you can transmogrify a specific unpopular thing, separating children from their parents into a popular thing, which is like fighting for you. And, and I think it's something that Israeli people told me when, when, when I was over there, which was that they said that like the most extreme settler groups in Israel are not popular, but that politicians going after the settlers is also unpopular because at the end of the day, people would rather have a politician in office who errs too far in the direction of standing up for the Jews than one who errs too far in the direction of standing up for the Arabs, right? And that, that you can see a sort of similar 
thing with with Trump that like it may not be popular to be this harsh, but it could be still a winner to be the guy who like owns the brand that like Donald Trump puts America first. Right. And his opponents are really worried about like some Swiss guy at the UN or, you know, some some sad Guatemalan child. But so, it's it's also telling that, you know, there's a real question to be asked of which children are we talking about? And I'm not Tucker Carlson isn't, you know, doing long shows about children who are in foster care across the United States. There are thousands and thousands of children in foster care who I'm sure would be very happy to talk to Tucker Carlson about the challenges of dealing with the juvenile justice system. And yet, you know, we're not hearing about those kids. It's kind of this like er child, this like beautiful, white, perfect child who has never done anything and would never get any trouble and would never become a liberal college student because that would mean they're bad now. And, you know, when Tucker Carlson looks at everyone with his Horton, here's a who expression. And just you know, the, the idea that you know, I understand what you're saying, Matt, and I do think that that makes sense as a political winner. But I also think that there's a understanding for Tucker Carlson and for people who follow Tucker Carlson that they, when they're talking about caring about your children, they're not talking about mine. They're talk, And they're probably not talking about yours either. So, you know, I hear what you guys are saying, but I almost wonder if children isn't actually where this breaks down. Like, thinking about kind of— The way I think of the dynamic you described, Matt, is that everyone wants to be the victim of their own story. Um, And it strikes me that the two big backlashes we've seen to Trump's policies from conservatives have been with DACA and this, both of which are issues that could be construed as, at least on immigration, both of which are issues that could be construed as, you know, Trump being mean to children. The idea that DACA recipients, you know, were brought here through no fault of their own, the kind of persistent idea that they still are children, despite the fact that it's like a whole cohort of people who are now young adults, I think it was very powerful. And on the other hand, the fact that as young adults, they're now kind of demanding to be seen with some agency and saying, don't demonize our parents by saying we were blameless, but uh, like and implying they were to blame has made it a little bit easier for that discourse to get polarized and for Republicans to be like, well, they're grownups now. Why don't they just come back where they come from? There's a kind of understanding that you have to, in order to make it seem like your target audience are the true victims and everyone else is the oppressors. If there are children on the other side of that, you have to make them seem like not children, right? You have to talk a lot about MS-13, which is fundamentally a teen gang that high schoolers join. You have to talk about Palestinian teenagers throwing rocks to make them seem like a threat. You have to tell a grand jury that the kid you shot didn't look like a kid. He looked like a full-grown man. When you have a narrative in which you can't assail the childness of the children, it seems that it's very hard for people to believe that really the children are the oppressors. I mean, it was very um, striking. There was a striking exchange at at Kristen Nielsen's press briefing where a reporter asked her how come in all of the official photos from the child detention centers, how come they only showed older boys, Mm -hmm. right? And she said, oh, she didn't know. She, She would look into it. But, like, it's obvious, right, you know, that, like, if you want to paint a legal child as a menace, uh, you got to go for a 15-, 16-year-old boy child. Right. Um, You're not going to go with a four-year-old girl. Right. Right. And the ProPublica audio that had everybody losing their shit 
that came out the same night is toddlers, right? And like tiny kids screaming. I mean, I do think you're right, you know, Derek, that like that's a very different politics, right? Mm -hmm. And in everything, everything that there's a reason why there was a longtime liberal organization called the Children's Defense Fund that basically advocates for welfare and, and social assistance programs, right? But it's it's called the Children's Defense Fund, not the Parents of Poor Children's right. Defense mm-hmm. Fund, right? Because there's a big difference in the eyes of like normal voters as to like, am I punishing some kind of like lazy non-worker or am I punishing a blameless child? Mm-hmm. Um, and, y- you know, so much of this comes back down to that. And and it does seem like I think there's a I think there's a method to Stephen Miller's madness, but like also an element of just madness. Right, exactly. And I, I do think it's interesting how the definition of child gets extended whenever one of the Trump children gets in trouble for something. Like somehow Donald Trump Jr. like, oh, he didn't know any better. I'm like, he's old enough to run for president. He can handle it. <laughs> yes. Um, it sort of depends where we where we go from this, though, right, which is why they do try to keep – pivoting the conversation back to, like, maybe the children are fake. Uh, Tom- yes, the, the child actors, which is something, you know, Ann Coulter brought up, which is how you know this is really starting to be a political winner, is that, you know, these children are faking it because they might be crisis actors, in which all relying on the idea that they would be scripted by liberal groups because toddlers for whom English is not their first language, are really good at following scripts, I've heard. I mean, for the record, there would be a not totally implausible way to put this, which is that these are children who are being trafficked in order to facilitate the immigration of adults into the country. That's kind of something that some officials are hinting at, although the actual statistics on fraud cases are uh, not nearly as dire as they claim. But no, they're going directly to this is a conspiracy to undermine the sovereignty of the United States. Well, what Tom Cotton said was that Democrats' bill that would require basically families to be kept together in this is that it would encourage traffickers to steal or kidnap children, show up at the border with them, and then gain automatic uh, release into the interior of the United States. So that's the line he's he's trying to take. And I think it – I mean it exposes the sort of political – unsafe ground that Republicans are out on, that he needs to recast this as defending children, right? But this raises to, I I think, the last thing we should talk about, right? Which is like, how does this end? Like, I'm trying to put myself in like, what does John Kelly think he's doing here? And I guess the thought is, if we ride this out for a couple of weeks, right? If we obfuscate or whatever, Congress doesn't pass a law, Word will trickle back to the Northern Triangle of Central America about these horrifying things that the great monster Donald Trump is doing and people will stop coming. And so then since people stop coming, the child detention centers will empty out. There will be no place that Jeff Merkley is showing up at. We will have fixed the border again and we can go back on the offense about our legislative agenda. Yes. And that it's actually – that there's these panicky congressional Republicans, but that actually Democrats don't have a winning hand here because the deterrent strategy is going to work. Right. I mean, that may very well be the logic. The problem is that that means that they've successfully begged the question or if you'd prefer drank their own Kool-Aid because there's not a lot of evidence that with a population like this, you know, deterrence that's just 
treating people poorly rather than refusing to hear their asylum claims actually does work. And, you know, the fact that we haven't actually heard anyone in the administration say our information tells us that it's going to take this long for the deterrence effect to work. They're now saying a few weeks, which could be anything. There is an unwillingness to kind of draw the marker of when they expect things to to drop off, which implies to me that they are a little bit worried that maybe that's not going to work out as well. Like seasonal trends mean that by August we'll probably have a decrease. Is that decrease going to be enough that Donald Trump won't be mad that the border isn't sealed? Probably not. And since Donald Trump's personal anger about border apprehensions is what drove this, it seems to me that it's not going to fade away if only because the president doesn't appear to want it to. Right, exactly. You know, when you've got Politico reporting that the president is all too willing to shut down on the government on September 30th over the issue of border wall funding, which is something that no one is able to put forward something that would, one, get there, and two, get there enough to please him and specifically please, you know, immigration restrictionists within the White House. If he wanted this issue to actually trickle away, it would trickle away just by virtue of him stopping bringing it up or not talking about it. But it's not going to because he has no communications discipline because this is Donald Trump and he says what he thinks. That's a good place to end. Yep. (sighs) All right. Um, Well, thanks, Jane. So it's always a pleasure. You know, folks want to sort of continue this discussion uh, in in the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, I think you should know where to find us by now. But, you know, check it out. That's always a a great place to go to talk about. Lots of hot raisinets takes. Yes, to mostly talk about raisinets. But also, if you have constructive suggestions for improving economic conditions in Central America, (laughs) I am am in the market for that and for delicious chocolate-covered raisins. And uh, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will return on Friday.